I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2. In my congregation in Darling Downs, I've been working through a series in the Gospel according to Mark, and I thought I would um, preach from the, one of those sermons from chapter 2. In chapter 1, Mark announces the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God stating his authority right at the beginning of the gospel. And this is one of the, the aims of Mark in the first chapters of, of his gospel, is to show the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in, in chapter 1. And then we also see that in our text in chapter 2. We'll read um, from chapter 2 up to chapter 3, verse 6. And our text for this morning will be chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, our text, as I mentioned, is from chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, so we won't read that again, but I encourage you just to keep your Bibles open as we'll be making a lot of reference to this passage this morning. Oh, dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian writer Jerry Bridges once wrote this line. He said, you've never had a day so good, you're beyond needing God's grace and forgiveness. You've never had a day so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. I wonder if you've ever had a conversation with someone and they tell you they don't need to come to church or they don't need to be a Christian because... I'm a good person, they say. Sure, there's lots of bad stuff that happens out there in in the world, but I try and do the right thing by other people. I'm a good person. I don't know if you heard that before. Or perhaps we can even convince ourselves that we are pretty good people, that God should look on us with favor because we don't do the outrageous sins that we read about or hear about other people doing. We might think, yeah, I'm doing all right as a Christian. I'm a pretty good person. Or on the other hand, perhaps you don't identify with this at all. Perhaps you're acutely aware of your own sin. Perhaps like David in in Psalm 32, you feel God's heavy hand pressing on you. It drains your vitality because your sin is ever before you. You know you're not a good person. 
when sin weighs down on us like this, we can wonder, how can God ever forgive me? Or perhaps God forgave me for this sin in the past, repeatedly. How can He forgive me again? Well, no matter how badly or good we might think we'd be doing, the, good, the gospel speaks to us this morning. It shows to us the, first, the great need we have of forgiveness of sins. This is our greatest need, the root problem from which all other problems flow. Indeed, the problem of forgiveness is so great that only God can forgive sins. Only He can solve this problem. But not only does the gospel pierce us like a sword this morning and open our hearts, it is also a, a surgeon's knife which brings healing because we'll see that God has given His Son authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the message of the gospel that I bring you this morning. Know that Jesus Christ has authority to forgive sins. And we'll look through our text in, in three different sections. We'll first of all see that Jesus' authority is stated, then it's challenged, and then it's demonstrated. So Mark begins his gospel account with the great proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. This is his statement right up front, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John the Baptist came announcing the Lord's coming, preparing the way for the Lord. He preached repentance. The Lord is coming. Jesus' baptism also confirmed to us that Jesus is God's Son. He was attested by God the Father, anointed with the Holy Spirit for His mission. And now at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus has just come back to Capernaum. Capernaum was a, a home base for the Lord Jesus. One of the other gospel writers tells us that Jesus moved there from Nazareth. And in verse 1 of our text, Jesus has just come back from a preaching tour. After calling His disciples and healing a lot of sick and demon-possessed people, Jesus has now gone to a, a quiet place to pray. He needed fellowship with His Father. That's where He got strength from, in communion with His Father. And after His Disciples had found him. Jesus had said, let's go to the neighboring villages also, 1 verse 38, that I may preach there as well, because for this purpose I have come. Preaching was at the heart of, of Christ's ministry. We often think that Jesus came doing a, a lot of miracles, and he did miracles, yes. His miracles confirmed the word that he brought. Preaching was what Christ came to do. He came to bring good news about his kingdom. Well, now in chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus' preaching tour is over, and we find Him preaching again in a house in, Gal in Capernaum. Now, houses in, in Galilee were pretty small. Most of them just had one room, and the houses were all clumped closely together. So that would have limited the, the size of the crowd of the people who came to hear Jesus preach. And we get the impression that some of them were standing outside the door. They were flooding into the streets. They were leaning in to, to hear what Jesus said. There was no way to get close to Jesus. The crowd was in the way. And among the many people who have heard about this preacher, there are four men who, who believe that Jesus can help them. They believe he can help their paralyzed friend. He's done other healings. He's cast out demons. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. 
Oh, surely they think, surely they can heal our friend. And while the crowd was in the way for these four friends, they ingeniously thought of another way to approach Jesus. The roofs on houses in Galilee were often flat, and they had a stone stairway coming up from the outside. I know that some of you here today are roofies. The roofs that you build are, shall we say, a little more developed than roofs in first century Israel. In those days, they just put some beams over the, over the roof, they covered it with some thatch and then put mud all over it to keep it somewhat cool inside. And the original language is quite vivid. It says that these, these four men, once they'd gotten their men on the stretcher up on the roof, they unroofed the roof. It says that they had literally dug through the roof. They had to dig through the mud which was on top of that roof and through that hardened clay. It's a bit of a comical scene, isn't it? I can imagine these men just putting their ear to the roof and saying, I think he's here. I think I can hear his voice. Let's dig through this spot. And as they dug through the roof, probably some of the soil would have rained down on on Jesus' head, not exactly an ordinary preaching experience. I hope the roof above me stays intact for the next half hour. But how does Jesus respond when they lower this man down? Verse 5, he sees their faith and he says to the paralyzed man's son, your sins are forgiven you. Isn't this a striking response? Here is a paralyzed man. Surely his great problem in life is that he cannot walk. And surely Jesus, the great healer, is able to do something about that. Why does Jesus tell him that his sins are forgiven? It almost seems callous. The man's problem is that he cannot walk. Dear brothers and sisters, the response of Jesus shows us his heart of love. Yes, Jesus extends mercy to this man, and he shows his heart of love for sinners. Because Christ shows us by this offer of forgiveness what this man needed most of all, not just relief from suffering, but forgiveness of sin, which is the cause of all suffering. Why is there paralysis in the world? Why is there back pain and leprosy and cancer and Alzheimer's and broken bones and broken minds because of sin, because of a broken relationship with God? We don't know the history of of this paralyzed man, There may have been some sins of of his youth which plagued him day and night. Or maybe there was nothing specific. Probably like the man born blind in John 9, his paralysis was not because of his personal sins or even his parents. And yet the greatest need for this paralyzed man, as Jesus diagnosed him, was that he needed to be forgiven of his sin. And that's also our greatest need, the greatest need for humanity, forgiveness, restoration of our relationship with God. There's no day that we are so good that we are beyond our need for God's forgiveness. Every day again, if our relationship with God was determined by our performance of God's law, we fail. Even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Laws 24. 
So Jesus shows great love by offering to this man what he needed most of all. He offers to this man restoration with God. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Well, the scribes sitting there start to feel pretty uncomfortable. These scribes were the ones who were trained in the Old Testament scriptures. They were well-versed in Moses' teaching And they were the ones who taught the scriptures at the local Galilean school. They know their stuff. As I was thinking about this story, I was reminded of my time in seminary when I had to give my first chapel message. I had to do this to a room full of seminary students and and professors. That was quite intimidating. These are men who know the scriptures thoroughly, especially the professors. If you mention a, a theological concept, they know all the Bible passages. If there's a a whiff of heresy, they'll smell it straight away. Or at least this was my perception as a a nervous first-year student. As it happened, it wasn't really that bad. But these scribes with qualifications, a bit like a, a seminary professor, they immediately smell heresy. Jesus' claim to forgive sins was like a, a huge red flag in their minds. They're faintly finely trained minds would have quickly jumped around the Old Testament thinking of objections to what Jesus had said. I imagine they would have thought of passages like Psalm 51, which we sang from, a psalm in which David acknowledges that sin is primarily an offense against God, even sins against others, against you, you only have I sinned. And that means that only God can forgive sins because He is the one offended. And the scribes, they may have also thought of the prophet Nathan. After Nathan came to David after his sin with Bathsheba, David had confessed his sin, and then Nathan responded in 2 Samuel 12 and said, the Lord has put away your sin. These scribes, they realized that the prophet Nathan couldn't forgive sins. He could only announce that the Lord had done that. Only God can forgive sins. They may have thought of passages like Isaiah 43, 25, which, where the Lord says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. They knew that forgiveness of sin could only be given by God himself. And on top of that, they may have thought of passages which show the awesome holiness of God. You know, when he appeared to Mount Sinai and gave his law, when the people couldn't even touch the mountain because of God's holiness, or when God appeared to Isaiah in a vision and Isaiah saw the throne room of God and the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And remember, Isaiah was overwhelmed by his own sin and the sins of people. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The scribes knew the holiness of God, that only he could offer forgiveness. It's not something to be taken lightly. You can imagine their discomfort as these red lights are blaring in their minds. Clearly, this man is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins and provide the solution to that which is done against him and against his awesome holiness. And so they debate in their minds, is is anyone going to say anything? Someone needs to respond to this blasphemous claim. His blasphemy was a serious offense in the Old Testament. The Old Testament law of Moses said one who blasphemed needed to be punished by death. 
Well, brothers and sisters, the scribes are not entirely off the mark. They do, I believe, have an important lesson for us. And that lesson is that forgiveness cannot be taken lightly. Sin is serious. It offends God's holy majesty. And he has said that sin is punishable by death. The scribes, they understood that. And yet at the same time, they're blinded to the solution that God had provided. They themselves needed forgiveness, just as much as this paralyzed man, just as much as me and you. But they didn't see Jesus as a solution God gave him. They didn't see him as the Son of God. They didn't accept his authority. And because they didn't understand that Jesus is really and truly God, that he is able to offer forgiveness, their opposition to him grows. The scribes have already been introduced in chapter 1, where Jesus taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. There's a tension there. And we saw that escalating even throughout our reading this morning to the point in chapter 3, verse 6, where they plotted to kill him. So how does Jesus respond to this challenge now as his authority is challenged, at least in the minds of the scribes? Well, he responds by asking these learned men a question. In verse 8, he says, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they questioned within themselves and said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Well, what do you think? What's easier? The emphasis here is on saying either of these things. Which is easier to say? Well, isn't it easier to say that your sins are forgiven? Because you can't verify that claim. No one can prove you wrong. You can't see if it's true or not. But if you tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk, well, you need supernatural power to back that up. The proof is in the pudding. If you're a fraud, then everyone will see right through you. It's harder to say to a paralyzed man to walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power or authority on earth to forgive sins, says Jesus, and then he commands the paralyzed man to walk. He says the harder thing, and the paralyzed man gets up and walks home. And this shows to us that Jesus does have authority in reflecting on what was easier to do to forgive sins or heal paralysis. The scribes must have realized that both of these are hard to do. Both are actually impossible. Humans cannot forgive sins, and they can't make lame people walk. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. And that's why Jesus also calls himself the Son of Man. This is a phrase that you'll see throughout the Gospels. Jesus often uses this to describe himself. And this is a phrase which has a a couple of layers of meaning. First of all, it means a true human. For example, in in Psalm 8, the author there responds to God's magnificent creation and, and man's place in it. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? The son of man here in Psalm 8 simply means one who is a true human. 
But there's another way that the Son of Man is used in the Old Testament. That's in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has a vision of one who is seated on his throne and has authority over all peoples and nations and languages, one whose kingdom would never be destroyed. And so this Son of Man has the authority of God Himself, the authority to heal, the authority to forgive sins. And the term Son of Man, it, it also had, the, had an advantage in that it didn't carry so much baggage as the term Messiah. You know, that term Messiah, there was so much misunderstanding. People expected the Messiah to bring political freedom, but the term Son of Man avoided that misunderstanding. And so Jesus uses this term to point to His authority. He has the authority of God Himself, the authority to forgive sins and to heal. And He has this authority on earth. God has come down to earth. This has never happened. That God Himself has come down to earth with the authority to forgive sins. And as I've mentioned, it shows the great love of Jesus Christ. Because He could only offer forgiveness of sins knowing the immense sacrifice that He Himself would make. The price that Jesus would pay for the paralyzed man would involve bearing the full punishment for his sins. Forgiveness wasn't free. It wasn't just forgetting about how much the man had offended God. It wasn't just sweeping it all under a carpet. God couldn't do that. Sin is way too serious. He is perfectly just. But the love of God is that He offers forgiveness of sins through His Son, who Himself bore in His body the weight of God's wrath against our sin. That's the good news that Jesus was preaching. And that's the good news that we are called to embrace in faith again this morning. Repent and believe in the good news. There is no day which we're so good that we're beyond the need for God's forgiveness. But there's no day in which we're so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. The Lord Jesus Christ announces His authority to forgive sin, all of it. Know this, dear people. Know that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins and believe in Him because He truly is the Son of God. Well, we see through this story that Mark shows us what is at the heart, what is at the core of of Jesus' ministry. He preaches this message of forgiveness of sins. And after He died and was raised, the apostles Those who were sent out by Jesus, they continued to proclaim this message at Pentecost. Peter preached and he said, Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul passed on the message of first importance that Christ died for our sins and was raised. And so this must continue to be the central proclamation of the church. The priority of the Lord Jesus must be our priority to spread this message that our sins have been forgiven through Him, that Jesus has come as the answer to sin and suffering. Because you know the church can be easily distracted from that task. The call to take up arms for the cause of social justice beckons loudly. It's always a temptation to soften sin. But the Lord calls us again this morning to see what is at the heart 
of the church's message know that Jesus Christ has authority to forgive sins. And one final aspect I'd like to consider is that Christ is also the answer to suffering. The miracle that demonstrates his authority to forgive sins, but it also shows his concern to relieve this man from his earthly suffering. I'm sure that many of you suffer pain in your bodies, or you know someone who does. You know people with diseases in their body or in their mind. We sang from Psalm 103 at the beginning of this worship service, and that pairs together beautifully these two things. The Lord forgives all your iniquities, He heals all your diseases. Jesus is the answer to both the problem of sin and suffering. So our text shows to us the great love of God that He also cares about the suffering of His people. He has the authority also to end suffering. We know that He's forgiven our sins on the cross. That's done. But He will also bring healing in His time. It may not happen instantly like this paralyzed man. It probably won't. But we do look forward to a time when all pain will be gone, when all suffering will be removed and all our diseases will be completely healed. That will happen in the new creation, when all suffering and all sin will be gone. Perhaps you've heard of the Christian lady, Joni Erickson Tata. As we finish this morning, I want to reflect on her story, which I think captures the message of our story. Joni was involved in a a serious diving accident at just 17 years of age. She dove into a pond and was instantly paralyzed from her neck downward. And so for for more than 50 years since then, she's been a a quadriplegic. She's endured untold pain and, and suffering for more than 50 years. She's never been able to use her arms or her legs in that entire time. And this is what she writes as she reflects and as she thinks about the new Jerusalem, when her body will be restored. She writes, Some people think I want Jesus to come back so I can jump out of my wheelchair and walk again. Although at one time that was true, decades of leaning on Jesus in my suffering have driven my longings for heaven deeper. A glorified body will be nice, but I want a pure heart. I want to be holy. You see, in this quote, Joni has understood what Jesus came to do, that the problem of sin is our greatest problem, and she knew that Jesus Christ came with the authority to forgive sins, And she knew that he would come back to put an end to all suffering and sin and all the effects of sin. May this truth fill us with confidence and joy in our Savior today. Amen.